are back for another great episode of Black Equity Podcast, and I am excited about this uh, conversation. Whenever I can have an international conversation, I get really excited. Uh, I've spoken to a few people uh, from Toronto, and I'm really excited to speak with another today to learn uh, more about the work that she's doing uh, in her city and in her country, and also more about her nonprofit. So joining us on Black Equity Podcast is Mame Dahir. Welcome to Black Equity. How are you doing today? Hello, thank you so much for having me, DJ. It's an absolute pleasure. And thank you for having me on the Black Equity Podcast. I'm excited. I can't wait to see what we have to talk about because I've been, I've been waiting to get on this podcast. So it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to hear uh, what your initial thoughts were when you, when you came across our podcast. But before we do that, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your organization, and the work that you do. Absolutely. So my name is Mama Efwa Dihir. I am of Ghanaian descent. I was born in Ghana, West Africa, and I migrated to Canada in my early teens. Um, when I migrated here, majority of my education from primary school up until completing my graduate program centered on public health. So I acquired a Bachelor's of Public Health at Brock University, and then I went on to also attain a Master's of Public Health, specifically in Social and behavioral Health Sciences at the University of Toronto, where I also did a collaborative specialization in global health, as well as health services and policy research. So that's where my, um, I should say, academic expertise has sort of transitioned. So that was the trajectory of my academic journey. Now, coming on to my professional journey, it has mainly been um, focused, or I should say centered around first is transition from the banking field, where I worked there for almost half a decade. And then after my my graduate program, I had the, the honor to be working with the government of Canada as a policy analyst. And currently my role is uh, uh, as a policy analyst is with the Mental Health of Black Canadians Initiative, whereby we're committed to building the evidence as well as enhancing community-led, culturally focused mental health interventions that tend to address mental health as well as its determinant for diverse Black communities across Canada. Simultaneously, I'm a clinical research analyst with the University Health Network, whereby we are understanding and I'm, I'm actually um, leading, or I should say collaborating with the, with the qualitative research team to understand and reduce barriers to living, um, living donor kidney transplants amongst African, Caribbean, and Black communities. Uh, my passion as well is to you know support black communities and and provide services and resources to them and as a result of that i have a grassroots initiative called the power of love foundation canada where currently we are providing services in forms of education um, employability skills and knowledge to mention but a few to black communities within the greater toronto area and at large when I'm not doing anything, I should say, school-related or um, professionally related, I love to sing, I love to dance, 
I enjoy networking, meeting people. That is why I even have the pleasure of being with you here, DJ, on this podcast. And lastly, I always envision myself being like Oprah Winfrey. So I tend to host my own fake talk show in the shower and when I'm in my room, just pretending like I'm interviewing celebrities and so on. So succinctly, this is a brief introduction on who Mami Efwadi here is. Awesome, awesome. Hopefully one day uh, you'll be interviewing me on on your show. I look forward to uh, that moment. Um, so Absolutely. once again, uh, welcome uh, to Black Equity Podcast. Definitely uh, really excited about this. And that's quite the introduction and quite the work that you're doing. Um, how did you, because it sounds like a lot of it is around health and mental health, uh, you know, just to sum it up real quick. Why was that the, the particular area in which you decided to go down, uh, the particular sector you decided to uh, take interest in? Absolutely. Thank you very much for that. So, you know, my passion for the field of mental health has spanned from personal experiences to seeing, having friends around me who have, you know, experienced diverse forms of mental health illnesses and who have, you know, on, on one in one way or the other have experienced um, some imbalances, especially when it comes to their mental health. Subsequently, I believe that this was an area that I was particularly passionate about because as I said, I have had my own share of experiences and I've also had people around me that, you know, have dealt with such issues. So I witnessed firsthand some of the issues that sort of perpetuated in my community um, when, when, especially in relation to mental health. So subsequently, with Black populations being the most underserved as well as marginalized um, and being one of the highest rates of, of, of populations that tend to experience mental health illnesses, I strongly believe that by delving into this field or this sector within the health um, the health industry and to support Black communities that that deal with uh, mental health issues, I will be able to, you know, use my knowledge, use my skills, as well as my, my career to sort of close that gap when it comes to addressing issues within, that perpetuate within the community. So it all stemmed from personal experiences to witnessing certain um, encounters or certain, I should say, um, scenarios that occurred within people that I knew that dealt with mental health issues. Awesome. Um, so I wanted to, uh, for this conversation, I wanted to understand maybe some of the similarities and some of the differences that we're finding uh, across the globe. And I think this is a perfect time for us to kind of look at, um, you know, maybe the difference between the United States and, and Canada you're putting these initiatives together uh, for Black communities. Uh, what did you model? What have you been modeling your initiatives uh, around? Did you see something going on before that you said, oh, that worked, so let's do it this way? Or is this all fresh, new type of uh, approach to tackling an issue that seems to not have been really talked about five or 10 years ago? Yes, I, I strongly thank you very much for that question. So, you know, many years back, I just obviously I'm quite young, but 
even growing up, we realized that the issues in relation to mental health and the discussions we're currently having now were not the same five years, 10 years ago. People are being more open to discussions surrounding mental health. People are really coming out to embrace that, you know what, maybe whatever issue I was experiencing in, in relation to my cognitive um, ability and so on was as a result of certain something called mental health, uh, mental health issues. You know, especially from the community in which I heal from, as things tend to be very, you know, cultural based and spiritualized, mental health always used to be associated with either witchcraft or something that was voodoo. So now there seems to be a sort of change where people are realizing that, listen, this is not just a spiritual um, possession or you being um, voodooed by some sort of um, evil omen or so on, but it is mental health also mental health issues also are sort of encapsulated within certain cognitive psychological and neurological imbalances within us as human beings and sometimes too i people are also coming to the fact that you know there's certain stresses in our everyday life that contribute to mental health issues so i think for me it started off with the discussions that we're having in our communities. However, nonetheless, we realize that the Black community still lacks when it comes to um, or having open discussions on certain mental health issues. So as a result, I strongly believe that, you know, um, with supporting the work as a policy analyst with Black communities and also having uh, a grassroots initiative that supports Black Canadians, we will be able to address this gap and foster these discussions and conversations that, that, um, that have to result, that have to do with our mental health. Because it really starts from having conversations, right? If we just wanna go to our communities and say, you know what, um, mental health is not just spiritual, um, you know, we have to change our minds and people need to see therapists, it's not gonna work because we have a generation of people that is our parents, our uncles, our aunties, who didn't, were not raised and we're not thought the concept of mental health. Now, our generation, which is the millennial and Gen Z generation, has been blessed to have had that education of what mental health is all about. So the question is, how do we now transfer this knowledge that we have to um, our, our fathers and our parents who are more um, mature and older than us? And it starts from having conversations. It starts from having these initiatives that tend to spread knowledge and not only target the younger population, but the older folks as well. Oh. Why do you think a, a lot of people are hesitant to have these conversations when it comes to mental health? What seems to be the reason or some of the reasons why people are afraid to have the conversation? Stigma. Stigma. Um, even till date, mental health issues have been stigmatized. Um, we're in a society where the moment someone says you're dealing with mental health issues, it's like, people just associate that to being, um, for lack of a better word, that you're cuckoo, you know, because that was the word that was used 
um, previous years and previous decades that, you know, you're disabled, you're mentally challenged. So I guess the stigma that's associated with mental health has been an obstacle and a hindering factor for people to, you know, um, have mental health conversations or even come out to say that, you know, I'm dealing with mental health issues. So I really think that being people being, the fear of even being stigmatized has been one of the main reasons why people do not have con such conversations because nobody wants to be addressed as, or, or judged or looked at differently or treated differently as a result of their uh, mental health issues. You know, some people have even said that coming out to have, to open up and say they have mental health issues has impacted your work. Because now in certain cases, your manager might feel like, oh, okay, because she's dealing with depression and anxiety, we might feel like XYZ is not capable of taking on this tax. So I feel like the stigma aspect, um, which is the reality, has been the hindering factor and the obstacle to having discussions um, centered on mental health. Now, earlier in this episode, you mentioned working with the uh, government of Canada, how does that play into the work that you're doing on a daily basis with your organization? It's incredible and it's amazing. And I really love my work and I love the team that I'm working with because I have the honor to be at the center of it all. As I said, I work with the Mental Health for Black Canadians team. So we are really getting hands-on work. We're getting down um, and getting our hands dirty when it comes to how we can provide resources and services to address and impact um, the mental health of, of Black Canadians. And this directly correlates with the work that I do because I, I see that alignment in me um, being in the community. Because sometimes you realize that, and the issue that most people tend to discuss is that there seems to be a disconnect whereby the system does want to improve the society, but then, or the community, but they do not understand the lived experiences of these community members. They might not understand the needs, they might not understand the gaps. They can only assume based on statistics or um, research and say that, okay, well, based on scholarly literature, we see that Black communities within A, B, and C location tend to be um, marginalized. This is what we're going to do to improve or, you know, better their lives. But being someone in the community, in the heart of it, having people in the community who have shared the gaps in your needs, I'm able to now translate that into the work that I do. So for example, when we have a project, when we have a program coming up, a discussion, and the, the a proposition that is brought across the table that, okay, we're targeting Black communities, we're targeting this specific group of people, this is what we think should be done, I'm able to come in and say, no, 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 let's let's hold our horses there i work with the community i see what they need i think we should address it this way i think we should look at it this other way so being with with the work i do i'm able to bring that community based intersectional lens to with the community work I do, sorry, um, with my initiative, I'm able to bring that community-based hands-on experience as well as the intersectional lens to the work I do with the government. I love that. You know, I think this is a good time uh, to let everyone know, how did you come across our podcast? What spoke to you about our podcast and what made you reach out? 
Absolutely. So as I shared with you earlier on, I actually saw your podcast on LinkedIn because I believe you had shared um, you had shared a video. And as I watched it, I was so intrigued by it. So I went back on your Instagram page because that's when you had um, more detailed, uh, I guess, Insta TVs on, on your discussions. And I was just intrigued and more interested in the raw conversations that were had when it came to issues that affected diverse populations, especially within the Black community. You know, I'm all about equity. And even in the title of your podcast, as Black Equity Podcast, that alone like, drew me in because my work is all about creating an equitable society whereby there's fairness and there's equal distribution amongst all populations. And populations are not limited on resources just because of their social economic status, their vicinity in which they live in, their immigration status, and so on. So I really enjoy the, the, the rawness and, and authenticity in the conversations that were had and notwithstanding the obviously the, the nuggets and the knowledge and wisdom that was derived ride from your guest speakers as well. Wow, thank you so much for saying that. You mentioned uh, us having raw conversations, so let's make sure we give you that opportunity <laughs> as well, right? So let's Absolutely. jump in here. Absolutely. You, you mentioned earlier about uh African descent, Caribbean descent, and black communities. Yeah. And that stood out to me huge because, and I, I think we need to have this conversation. In your mind, and maybe I don't want to put anything inside your mind, so please correct me if I'm wrong. It's okay. What I heard was there's three different communities here. There's a black community, there's a Caribbean community. And then there's those of African descent community. Did I hear that right? Or am I making this all up in my mind? You're not making it up. You heard it right. Um, okay. You know, we're in, a, we're in a society. Let's start it this way. With the recent happenings in the, the gruesome killing of George Floyd, and obviously, Ahmed, I just don't want to. Mr. Arbery, I believe I'm pulling his name right, and many other of our um, our Black brothers who have died from police brutality and so on. We see that our systems are trying to transition into ways of targeting diverse Black populations. Because you, we just saying Black is not enough. We have to get to the nitty gritty of it. And that's what I talked about, about intersectionality. It's not just a black communities, because when you just group us as black communities, that's just not enough. We're talking about African immigrants. Things that might affect the Caribbean population might not really affect the African population and also might not even affect certain black communities. And when I say black communities, I'm talking about people who might not, although they might be from African descent, but they might not necessarily identify as black or uh, uh, sorry, as African or Caribbean. You know, they might just be Black Canadians. Maybe they have ancestors that um, um, were African and they have their own option to, to decide as to whether they want to take that on or Caribbean, but they just identify as just Black communities. So it's very imperative that 
when we are creating systems and we're creating solutions and we're creating interventions, we are considering these diverse communities within the Black population in mind. So here we tend to call it ACB communities, which is African, Caribbean, and Black. I know recently there was another word that came in, which was BIPOC communities, which is Black, Indigenous, People of Color. But what happens is when we keep on combining these words, which I don't see anything wrong with it, we're really missing the, the, the needs of these communities. Because some people of color might not experience the same, um, uh, the same, how do, how do I put this word? The same marginalization that people of, let's say, black or indigenous populations experience. Mm -hmm. um, we keep on seeing the majority of young black men are dying as a result of police brutality. Is this the same statistic among diverse people of color populations? No. So it's highly imperative that we sort of distinguish it and know how to tackle interventions to diverse communities. So to answer your question, yes. <laughs> so this, this is a, a fascinating conversation. I've actually been listening to this type of talk yeah. for about three weeks now on Clubhouse, right? Yeah. Most people, they'll go on Clubhouse and they'll, you know, go to where everybody's being peaceful and everybody's getting along yeah. and having a great old time. I tend to go towards where's the, the debate? <laughs> where's, you know, where's the, the, the conflict so I can find yeah. out um, where the progress is going to be. Yes. I believe yeah. in those conversations where you're going to find progress. Yes. And so as I'm listening to them, uh, a huge conversation that has been happening, at least um, from a Black American standpoint, is that Black Americans see themselves different than those of Nigerian or African descent or wherever um, in Africa or maybe or Caribbean. And you so they're bringing this beef here. <laughs> yes, we got we got to bring it because I just think this is the, the the perfect person to have this conversation with. So I just find this to be a fascinating conversation because some people who come into those clubhouse rooms who are Caribbean or African uh, descent of some sort, they are offended when Black Americans will say something like, well, you're not technically Black, you know, you're not Black like this. I mean, yes, for the political side, we'll call you Black, but you're not really Black. So I'm, I'm open to hearing your thoughts on just maybe the different angles, especially with you having direct connections uh, to Africa. You really brought the heat. Yes, ma'am. I've actually tried my best. I think I was in two or one clubhouse room that mm -hmm. had a debate and I was just like, my, my heart was getting there. But it's, I think what you're talking about, and if I get, I can get more specific, sure. the conversations surrounding the Indus communities versus the African Caribbean immigrants. So just for people who might be listening to this platform and might not know what ADAS is, ADAS is an acronym for American Descendants of Slavery. And what this term basically means is it refers to people who descended from Africans and they were enslaved specifically in an area um, that will be in the United States that obviously occurred from the colonial period up until now. So that is, um, for example, that is African-Americans and so on and so forth. They, they make up this um, ADOS population. 
Now, just to give you also a brief background, this seems to be this back and forth and practice when it comes to, as DJ said, when it comes to the African um, immigrants that are coming in and the African Americans who form more of the ADOS population, where it's, it's it seems like they're saying that okay, you guys are not technically, you know, black black because we mm-hmm. are black descendant. Truthfully and honestly, let's call a spade a spade. Although um, there are ADOS populations, they still descend from from African. Um, they still have African descent. So believe it or not, you want to call yourself Black American, but you are African. You are Caribbean because that's where your roots tend to come from. Sometimes the issue here is that I don't know what it is, but the conflict that I've seen on Clubhouse as well is the the lack of recognition for most African Americans saying that they are technically not African. You know, and that really hurts us because we're like, you're, you're my brother, you're my sister. So we're all from, like, as the quote says, everyone is from Africa. So why are you trying to, you know, distinguish yourself and segregate yourself from this? This has been something that has been happening for years and decades. When I myself was an immigrant in Canada, I experienced bullying. And sometimes you think that bullying will come from my white, my, um, the white counterparts but it came from my own fellow black people. It came from black Canadians who bullied me because apparently I had a thick African accent. So I was an African quote unquote booty scratcher. Um, Africans are dirty. Africans are, they said everything in the book. So I think it stems from the ignorance that people tend to have, number one of their roots, of their culture and being so entitled to, the, to, to feel that coming to America makes them any different from who their descendants are. So to be honest with you, I think that the, the center of this is mere ignorance. It's mere ignorance with the people not realizing that, you know, in as much as yes, you wanna to claim to be a different nationality, don't forget where your roots really stems from and being discriminatory towards people of other, other descent, towards immigrants of African and Caribbean populations is it's quite absurd. Well, you know, I do agree that no matter what your stance is, you shouldn't be discriminatory towards mm-hmm. people who look like you. You should, really shouldn't be discriminatory towards no, anyone. <laughs> Right. So I we we agree there. I do think there is a possibility that some Black Americans did not come from Africa. I do believe there is a, a possibility, and because we don't really know, I I will I will reserve the right to you know allow us time to find that out for 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 sure. But either way, whether I am of African descent or I'm not of African descent, how that should not stop me from treating someone else with a sense of humanity and a sense of respect. That's right. The reason why I bring this up is I wonder how much are narratives like this playing towards our mental health? Because if we don't know who we are, Mm -hmm. if there is is an identity crisis within our community, Mm I would think that has to play a huge role when it comes to trying to understand 
who you are as a human being and understanding how your mind works. Yes, absolutely. You know, currently we're in a, in a society, as I said, especially when the gruesome murder of George Floyd came up, we realized that a lot of organizations, especially mental health organizations, started realizing that, you know, some of our interventions that we were using to target Black communities might have been wrong. Um, we should use more culturally appropriate and culturally responsive techniques to address issues in relation to diverse communities, especially black communities. So here is the case where someone might say, I'm black, I'm not from so-so and so origin, I'm not from this descent. You put yourself in an identity crisis because when sort of accepting that intervention or that culturally appropriate intervention, how would you know what works best for you when you do not even really know what you, what you culturally identify as because culturally creating culturally appropriate interventions play a key role in 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 tend to, tending to you know mitigate certain mental health issues so for me for example i can give you a perfect example in my not-for-profit organization we recently had a workshop on mental health and financial literacy my workshop was targeted towards banning single mothers for me, because I'm Ghanaian myself, I wanted to target this workshop to them. When I went deeper to really ponder on how these workshops could be beneficial, I told myself, you know what, I have to deliver something that is culturally responsive, something that could benefit these single mothers and something that they could really relate to. Because you, nowadays there are a ton of mental health workshops and a ton of mental health activities. So what can I do, me being someone who wants to address the black population, especially the Ghanaian single mothers, how can I do to make this very culturally appropriate? My answer was to provide the mental health workshop, number one in our Ghanaian dialect, which was tree. Tree is the um, universal language, a second language that is spoken by majority of Ghanaian populations. So number one, provided in tree. Number two was the people that were going to facilitate these workshops. I made sure that they were female Ghanaian women experts in mental health. Number three, I ensure that when they were given tips on mental health um, wellness and measures to you know impact our mental health, they were using techniques within our own culture. So let me break it down. Mm -hmm. So for example, most of people of other descent might go to want to see a therapist, which obviously everyone should see a therapist and so on. Most, most um, other uh, populations or uh, ethnicities might use different techniques to address mental health. Some people might say, okay, yoga is the best way to do it. Breathing exercises is the best way to do it. But I told the mental health experts that when you're talking to these women, find techniques within our culture that we can use to improve our mental health. So one of them was using cocoa butter. So mm. shea butter, basically, which in Ghana, most shea butter is made in Ghana. Apparently, and I didn't know this myself, it came from the mental health experts. You can use, for even to improve your own wellness, you just have to boil hot water, put shea butter in the hot water and put your feet in it. 
and apparently it's medicinal and it can help you cognitively. Oh, really? I did not know that. Wait a second. How much shea butter do I need to put in here? (laughs) Goodness. You know, and I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And apparently, not only does it make your feet feel smooth, but mm-hmm. it, it impacts you. Like, I mean, your overall well-being, you feel fresh and so on. They also provided us with knowledge on other herbs, other, um, you know, um, food stuff that we had, other ingredients that we have in our culture that we could use and utilize to help ourselves and improve not only because your physical health is your mental health. So mm-hmm. it's your physical well-being and our mental health well-being as well. But this you realize how this ties into our culture. We centered that on our culture. So here's the case where you don't want to identify as anything. You just want to be black, which is which is good. But if beyond the blackness, there is an independent factor, which is the culture what make the culture is what really makes you black not just the color of your skin but the culture in which you are based in because i'm black but when you come to me and identify who i am i am Ghanaian by culture and me being Ghanaian is what really makes me who i am in my morals in my values in the way i think in the food i eat in the way i communicate with people in my um overall activities even in my workplace the way i interact with people it's shaped by my culture so if you want to disaggregate yourself from your culture who really are you you get what i'm saying because black culture does some it's not just black culture black culture is an independent factor of black culture black culture is rooted in a setting culture and that is where the argument is coming around where, okay, maybe it's not the African, maybe it's not the Caribbean, maybe it's not this, then what is it? <laughs> you know, right. so it's very important that you recognize your roots. And Ghana in 2019 organized, there's a big tourism event called, um, oh, oh, my goodness, my goodness, how could I forget? Year of Return. Yes, yes, I remember. What the year of return, and the year of return was done by our country and and uh, the ministers in our states and our government, so that people can come back home and learn from your roots. So, mm-hmm. St. Harvey was there, and a lot of other people were there. Where they came back to Ghana, they visited the slave, um, the slave. Um, camps where most of black slaves were kept they visited the places where you know we were colonized by by the british and other european people so by by people who might not quote unquote identify themselves as africans or caribbeans or whatnot at least if you don't identify it's your choice but it's still important and imperative to learn something because only by learning and being open so those conversations, will you really understand how it impacts your overall identity? I respect what you're saying a thousand percent. I love where you're coming from. Do I have permission to push back just push a little back. bit? Push back, push back. I would say, yes, we should go to Ghana. We should go to Nigeria. We should go to South Africa, Kenya, Rwanda. We should go to all these different places and learn about them. Mm. The issue that I'm seeing, though, is many of these people 
come from Africa. They come from the Caribbean. They come from other places. These different immigrants come to Canada. They'll come to the United States. And they aren't willing to learn about the foundational people and their history. They'll learn, they'll learn, they'll learn just enough to say that they know it. But they don't necessarily learn our history. And yet then, then they want people to go back to their hometown or their home countries and learn about theirs. And to me, that's being disingenuous. If, if we're going to share cultures and share thoughts with each other, we're going to have to, it can't be a one-way street. It has to be uh, both, you know, participating in that endeavor. I'll push back also, DJ. Sure. Um, it's interesting you say that because truthfully, and I'll be very, very honest with you, even when I was in Ghana, because um, I grew up in Ghana, most of, and most people who might be listening to this that um, grew up in any part of Africa, majority of the history we learned in primary school and high school were centered around American, European, and most histories that were outside of even our own culture. We learned mostly about how we were colonized by the Europeans. We learned about so many, that's why some, there are some, some Africans who know a lot about the American culture, even than they know about their own African culture. Mm-hmm. Come here and we are taught these things in school. I'm not saying that our schools are teaching us about Black African-American culture, but we are taught these things in school. I mean, it's easily accessible to us on the, for us on the internet. We can read about Martin Luther King and all Malcolm X and all these other people who have paved the way. So these resources are easily accessible to us. And, and to almost an extent, um, we, it's pushed down on us when we go to our educational systems. But for you guys, where are you learning about this from? Because they don't teach it in schools. When I came to Canada, they didn't teach anything about African culture in schools. We will be dumb even if we were allowed to have a Black history month in February to teach people about African culture. So it's like for us, even back to our own educational system in our home countries of origin, they taught us European American stuff. Here, they don't teach you guys that. So, so why is that? Why are they teaching that in Ghana? I think it's because of it's, it centers down to the colonization aspect. We've been so colonized that our educational system has also been colonized. Where, And I'm not saying that they don't teach African um, history in Ghana. They do. I mean, in my classes too, we learned about so many people in Ghana who have paved the way, like Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, Ya Asantua, to mention but a few. They taught us that. But in amalgamation to that, we were also taught a lot about the European and American culture. You understand? So I think it was also possibly it was it's something that edu- the educational system is doing for us to sort of understand where we came from to attain independence uh, um knowing that okay you know what many many years ago before 1957 we were colonized by the british and and the europeans who came to settle and so on but majority of our education has centered on that that the dutch came in there and so on so even if you look on my last name my last name is not a Ghanaian last name. My last name is Dutch. 
I'm not Dutch at all. In fact, it was actually up until recently that someone on Clubhouse who lives in the Netherlands corrected me on how to pronounce my last name. Because mm. I thought my last name was Dahir the whole time. And he pronounced it a certain way. I was like, wow, I never knew that was actually how my, my last name is pronounced. So most of the time in our educational system, we are taught about how the Dutch people settled, the people from Finland settled in Ghana, how they enslaved our people, how we fought to gain independence. And that's how it's been, you know? So that's just... Our, 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 I guess, our story. And I mean, that's why when we come also, I think the issue is that we don't, it's not that we don't want to learn, it's that we don't want to lose our culture or we don't want to lose what we, we have. Because we're in a new country and it's so easy for us to, you know, adapt and accustom ourselves to this new culture mm -hmm. and fear of that, okay, Although we try to assimilate into the new culture, we do not want to lose the culture that we came in with. You understand? So I think it's also that impact of wanting to preserve the culture that we have. So we, we, we still hold on to it very dearly. I love that. I love that you push back uh, on me. I always love a great pushback. Uh, so do, taught me that. <laughs> how do people collaborate with you? How do they work with you? if they have the same passion uh, for this initiative that you do. Absolutely. So first of all, thank you very much, DJ, for this amazing opportunity. Um, so as I stated earlier on, the name of my organization is Power of Love Foundation Canada. And if anyone is seeking to collaborate, passionate about, you know, impacting the lives of diverse Black communities, um, you can send me an email. And so my first name, which is Mamed, dot my last name without the hyphen. So Mamed does Dehir, D-E-H-E-E-R at gmail.com. And I would be more than happy to collaborate. You don't even have to have the same passion as me. Just come in. If this just seems like something you are just interested in, um, we can always find ways to, you know, work together and collaborate. Now, is that open to people globally or is it just in your... Globally. Okay, yeah. awesome. Uh, before we head out, I wanted to give you uh, an opportunity um, to kind of share with us your thoughts on uh, those coming up in uh, the area of analyzing policies, those coming up in the area of, of health. I always love to give just some words of wisdom to people who are on their way to working on what you're working on. Any words of wisdom to those on that journey? Thank you very much for that question. I really believe it's highly important. I think I'll, fair, I'll summarize everything into one phrase in that life is a process. Um, it always starts from a step. So if you're interested in getting into policy and like being a policy analyst or even getting into the type of work I'm doing, it's imperative to have number one, your educational background. So for most of the courses I took within my, my uh, post, postgraduate degree, it really centered on policy courses. So if there's something you're interested in, it's highly imperative to get involved with, with policy courses that are, are offered in your school, in your institution and so on. Besides that, right now, even on Clubhouse, 
um, on the internet in organizations. There's so many resources on um, policy making, uh, policy discussions, policy leading, and so on. Get yourself ingrained in those things. Because when you go on your interviews, those are the questions you're going to ask. How are you familiar with policy work and so on? So by being abreast with these um, with this knowledge is highly expedient. And most importantly, find something you're passionate about. Um, I'm passionate about mental health. I'm passionate about all things Black people. I'm passionate about all things women and, 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 and girls. So when you are able to identify your passion, um, you can do anything within policy, to be very honest. So find the population that you're passionate about, and then the, the world is your oyster. Thank you for that. I have one last question. This is a bonus question Shoot. for those who stayed the entire episode. No. Are you aware of, I think it was, I think it was the government of Canada, or maybe it was specifically a specific city, but they had a, um, an initiative for black entrepreneurship. It was a, yeah. can you tell me if you're able to, can you tell me a little bit more about that and how that impacts your country and your potentially your city? Absolutely, yes. So um, the government of Canada came up with uh, a Black entrepreneurship program to offer grant, grants sorry, um, and skills to Black entrepreneurs in Canada. And this was absolutely amazing because, as I said, Black communities are underserved, they're underrepresented, and so on. And having such a program to support Black entrepreneurs to help them build their businesses, especially um, as COVID has affected majority of Black businesses as well was great. Um, it's interesting you asked me this because I had a lot of friends in the States that sent me links. So they were like, oh my gosh, I think you should apply for this. I think you should do this. And I was like, I don't have a business, unfortunately. But I really do believe that this program was highly imperative to support Black communities, especially those that were, were entrepreneurs and people being offered grants um, and, you know, bursaries and fundings just towards the organization was a very good uh, initiative that the, the government of Canada took. Thank you so much, Mame, for coming through Black okay. Equity Podcast. The doors are open. Anytime <laughs> you want to come back, continue this conversation. There's a lot of different angles we can take our next conversation. Uh, so I look forward to staying in contact and, and working closely together. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, DJ. Thank you.